Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to Polygamy, What Love Is This? I'm your host, Doris Hansen, and we talk about Mormon polygamy on this show. And today we have a special guest who was born and raised in the Kingston Polygamy Group, whose story is very interesting. But before I introduce him, I'd just like to say that if you uh, would like more information about how a shield and refuge can help you or someone you know get out of a polygamy group with a safe place to go, you can go to the website shieldandrefuge.org or you can call toll-free 877-425-9993 and all information discussed will be held in complete confidence. And if you have questions or comments about our show or any of our show or if you would like to be a guest, you can send an email to email at whatloveisthis.tv or call 385-240-2888. You know, we are always very excited to talk with people who want to share their experiences in polygamy. Our guest this time has a unique story, which we hope that you'll enjoy and learn some interesting information about the early days of the Kingston Polygamy Group. He was born and raised in the Kingston Polygamy Group. I knew him and his family while I was growing up, but I didn't know them real well because most of the time we lived in different parts of the state. He has written a book about how his parents were married in the LDS religion and then seduced into Mormon fundamentalism of the Kingston Polygamy Group, and he writes about the mysterious death of his father. And so to get started, I would like to introduce and welcome our guest, Charles E. Mattingly. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for coming and for being willing to talk about your story. Um, You wrote a book, and it's entitled Murder at the Mine. It's uh, on the screen. And we want to discuss, first of all, the particulars uh, that you cover in the book. But, but first of all, I'd like to, to um, our viewers to get to know you better and your story and your experiences to better understand you and why you wrote the book and why you think your father was murdered, which is what the title of the book is about. So first of all, where can our viewers buy your book? You can go on my line, uh, my website, uh, which is scenichikingphotos.com and order it and I'll ship it out to you. Or locally here in Salt Lake City, there's uh, three bookstores that are carrying it right now. Um, Ken Sanders. Ken Sanders. Uh, rare books. Rare books. Uh, Ebon Rare Books. And, Gold, and then, Golden Braid just picked some up yesterday or the day before. Okay. So, uh, so Ken Sanders is on 268 South 2nd East. Yes. And Eborn Books uh, is on 254 South Main. Correct. And the, the new um, vendor is, what, what's the address? They're at 151 South, 500 East. Okay. So there's three places in Salt Lake City that they can get your book and or go to your website go, and go order to my it website from there. Order. Okay. So good. That is, it's a very interesting read for those who are interested in polygamy in the Kingston group and, and, and a lot of the beginnings of the early days of the group 
right after it first started. So let's begin with you. You were born and raised in the Kingston group. What do you remember about your childhood? Was it? What, do you have good memories about growing up? There, there were some good things, but there was lots of vacancies. In other words, there were lots of things that didn't happen that should have happened. I don't remember a real strong family life. Uh, I remember me and my two brothers and some of our friends was playing at the mine in the mountains a lot. I remember when we moved to Salt Lake when, uh, in 1958 because the younger kids had to be away from the mine to start school. And I worked at Valley Feed and Coal Company. I don't know if they're even still there anymore. Yes, they are. Yeah. Uh, but I, I worked there. Uh, all three of us boys worked there. In fact, my older sister managed it for a while. Hmm. But uh, we worked there cleaning the chicken coop, gathering eggs and feed and coal and whatever, helping. Paid a grand total of 25 cents an hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were good at their pay, weren't they? You mentioned several times in your book that you, that they, as a group, they neglected. There was a lot of child neglect in the group. What kind of neglect did you see and what kind did you experience? Well, the neglect of basically the, the mother was the only one to take care of them. There's never any men around to take care of them. There's no guidance from a man. Uh, neglect, uh, me and my brothers, when we were just teenagers, we just decided we were going to go hiking sometime. And we took off for three days and never told anybody. And when we came back, nobody seemed to care. We was back and it didn't oh, matter. Oh, my word. We was gone for three days. How uh, old were you? I think I was probably 10 or 11. Oh, maybe, my goodness. Maybe younger. I don't remember. And nobody sure. said anything. If I did that when I was little and came back in three days, they would have whopped me. And it was, we'd just go whenever we wanted, whatever. Oh. What we, I remember many a times, just as kids, I couldn't even swim. We'd go down the river and... And uh, I was always scared because the older kids could jump on the logs and go across, and I had to somehow get across or get left behind, and I was always afraid I was going to fall in the ground, and somehow we made it. <laughs> but, yeah, we, we made it, that's true, but there, there wasn't any um, adult supervision no, in these, yeah, no matter how little you were. Okay, you wrote that your mother was more concerned about the leaders of the Kingston group than she was about herself or anything else, and I want to quote from page 82, uh, just uh, what you said. Uh, Mom was more concerned with what Eldon Kingston, and he was the leader of the group, uh, she was more concerned about what Eldon Kingston told her than with the safety of her children. Why could the co-op not send men to the houses that needed help? The co-op was always claimed that they help their own. Now, the Kingston group has a nickname called the co-op because of the, their name was a cooperative, Davis County Cooperative Correct. Society. They also have a nickname called The Order. So once in a while, we'll say one or the other so our viewers will know that we're talking about the Kingston Group. Now, you said they didn't help their own, but isn't that what the United Order is all about, that they help their own? They talked about it all the time and everything. And when I was younger, I seen a little bit of it, but not a lot. But at that time, when I was living in West Jordan, I was very young, and it was, uh, I believe it was the winter of 1948, one of the coldest winters Utah had ever experienced. And the snow was so deep on the houses, it was caving them in if they didn't get the snow off. Mm. And so mom had to get the snow off the house, and nobody from the order would come and help her. And she was afraid to get up there. And uh, she remembered that Eldon told her that don't, don't ask anybody to do a job that you can't do. Mm. So she asked her oldest daughter, Charlene, if she would get up and help her. And Charlene says, Mama, you don't have to do that. I'll do it. And so then she, she says she was relieved from asking somebody to do a job that she couldn't do. And so they, they, they say, we're here to help each other, so it's all for one and one for all, and nobody's going to be in need. And then they give you a guilt trip for asking for something that you are in need of. Yes. Especially when there are so many women 
that are a need in polygamy groups? About the only time you'd get any help in the inner families is when one woman would go help another and there was for hard jobs that had to be done. It had to be the kids to get it done. No, no men was ever around mm -hmm. to help do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. Um, you also said something on page 86 I want to quote. Uh, the leaders of the co-op showed no concern for the families. They were only concerned with establishing and increasing their financial empire. First, it is believed they paid a part in my father's death and the family must go without the basic necessities needed to survive just so the co-op could take the money and increase their empire. So we're going to talk about your father's death in part two, or this is going to be a two-part show. Um, so we'll discuss your father's death in part two, but let's talk about them building their financial empire. They, were, they had more interest in that than they did in the families and in helping the women like you talked about. They, they, they always taught in their Sunday school classes, if you can call them that, using the term loosely. <laughs> Uh, but they always taught that you had to make money and you had to consecrate it and turn it into God, that you wasn't supposed to go spend it or anything. Mm -hmm. And as kids, we was expected, uh, while living at the mine, to make what was called dummies, and that's just the clay dummies to hold the dynamite in when they were shooting. And we would make them and we was expected to keep ahead of the miners' need, and we was paid like two cents a dummy for them. So working mm -hmm. all day long, you may make a dollar or two. Mm -hmm. Depends on how good you was, but you never made a lot of money. In. And I want to talk about that a little bit later, too, because that's a very interesting uh, uh, note that you made in the book about it. But they would ignore, so that they could become a financial empire, they would ignore the economical needs of the families, especially big families. They had big families. And the widows and the women, and, and not allow you to spend the money you make. I had, them. I had two real conflicts with Mrs. Later on Life. I hope I'm not skipping too far ahead. No, I, no, go ahead. I was a teenager. I was going to West High School in Salt Lake City, and I joined the Junior Achievement Club. And I don't know if you know what that is. It's where the high school kids learn business ways in the world and everything and make, mm -hmm. a, make a club. They, they produce a product, take it out and sell it. And they, First, they sell stock to get money to get materials to produce the product. They sell the, the product, produce it, and sell it. And then at the end of the year, they pay all the stockholders back. Hopefully, they can pay them back more money than what the stock was. The stock was only a dollar a share at the time, but I remember, and they voted me in as treasurer. So we'd gone out and sold a lot of the product to some of the stores. We was making a lint brush to clean lint off your clothes. Uh -huh. And I had probably 20 or $30 of the fund money with me. And we, I needed to buy something on the way home, and I didn't have any of my money with me. And I thought, no problem, I've got money turned into the co-op. I can use some of this money and just go get it and replace it before I have to take it to school. So I used it and got the things I needed. I went up to the office to get it, and the lady there told me I couldn't have the money. All my money had been applied to my mother's debt, and I didn't have any money anymore. Oh, my word. And that took quite a doing to get that, because oh, I was afraid word. that I was going to be prosecuted for embezzlement. Oh, my goodness, yeah. And how but old were you? I was probably about 15. Wow. Um, they did that. They, they, you would turn the money, and I remember uh, the same kinds of things like that. Not exactly the same story, but if we needed money or wanted money and needed something, we had it on our statement. They never gave you a paycheck, but they put it on a statement piece of paper that you had that much money in their account. But you went to get it. They'd give you a guilt trip. Yes, uh, they, they would talk you out. They'd lecture you. <laughs> uh, I'll skip a little bit more if you don't mind. I, another one, when I was a little older, I'd returned from the Army. And I wanted to buy a car, and I'd been sending money home to my brother to turn in for me. And I had four or five hundred dollars in there, not a lot. Then it's a lot them days to me, but not a lot now. 
Well, I wanted to buy a car, and I found a 57 Chevy that was used, and it was $375. I told the guy I'd buy it. So I went up to the office to get the money, and I was told, no, I couldn't have it, that I hadn't got their permission to buy the car, and they didn't have any money to give me, and they wasn't mm -hmm. going to give it to me. Mm -hmm. And yet you had the money in uh, their account. It took a lot of oh. bitter argument with the lady, and I'm avoiding names. But. Yeah, yeah. there's horror stories of some of the, uh, some, I've heard from some of the members. Your mother was a widow, um, and this is uh, after many years after she joined, but she was a widow with six children and she was a, a faithful member of the Kingston Polygamy Group, but she didn't have any place to live at one point. And so she asked the leader of the group for permission to live in a tent at the coal mine. Would you explain what happened with that? Well, I was too young to know then, but I remember a little bit of the move down, but at the time she asked permission to move into the tent and she was granted permission on the condition that she pay for the tent. She bought it from them, but it was just an old army surplus tent. That and she had no income. She had no husband. She had the six children. I don't even think her pension had started yet. She had zero income. Yeah, it didn't it, it sound like. It might have started by then. I'm not sure. But she had to buy it, and then we moved down there. If any of you are familiar with old army surplus tents, it's big enough for maybe a squad of, of men. It was just a canvas no, uh, with a door in it, no windows, no windows on the side. And I explained in the book, and I showed pictures of it where uh -huh. she, she actually cut the canvas, made a window in the side, made windows in the door, partitioned it off so the boys on one side and the girls on the other side. Uh, I think she eventually got running water in there just to wash your hands with, but other than that, there was nothing. If you used uh -huh. the restrooms, we had to go outside. They, they forced poverty on you, and we'll talk about that too as we go. Um, your mother later married a man by the name of Stan Pratt. But it wasn't a legal marriage. It was a spiritual, what they call a spiritual marriage. Why didn't they get married legally? And did he have another wife? Let me back up on that just a little bit. Uh-huh. Stan Pratt was married to mom's sister at one time, and they was both in the, in the co-op. Uh-huh. They got divorced, and her sister left and went back to the Mormon church. And Stan was in the co-op, so he's basically our uncle. But... Uh, I think it was C.W. Kingston. I use Kingston's name because they're all over the internet anyway. That's yeah. some of the few names I'll use. <laughs> but he came to mom and told her, and this is only weeks after the funeral, you're not supposed to see any other men, and if you do start seeing any men, the only man you're allowed to see is Stan Pratt. So, so they got to... They picked her... Control her romantic life, as it were. And we never knew him all the time growing up as anything other than an uncle. We never knew him as a stepdad or anything, but yeah. technically he was. I mean, yeah. he was did there he, Did he have place. another wife? He didn't at the time. No, he'd married uh, mom's sister. But he, he divorced didn't, her. He, he, didn't ha he didn't take okay. on another one. And they didn't tell you that um, you or your siblings that your mother had married him. Uh, they, they kept that a secret yes. uh, until years later. Why did they keep that a secret from you, and how did you feel when you discovered the truth? Well... The reason they keep it a secret, I believe, is because they keep everything secret. Because <laughs> if they, if everything they did was brought out in the open, and most of them would be in jail, I'm sure. But they keep everything a secret. They tell people they're not supposed to talk to anybody. That you're taught that as a child, you're never supposed to go to the police officers for help if you're lost. You're mm -hmm. supposed to avoid him because they're danger. That you should stay away from them. And everything's secretive, and only the people right around you know what's going on at, the, at that minute, and, and that's not even talked about it with other people. Mm -hmm. Everything's secretive. They, 
They're cover yeah. I, I thought, and I've written in my book about it, if, if this is the way of God and the Word of God and this is what you're supposed to be doing, why is it kept a secret? Yeah. And why does the, the leaders of the co-op go to entice the women to join instead of the men? Mm -hmm. And they get the women. I referenced yeah. it in my book. And we're going to talk about that, too, about how okay. your mother joined and so on. Um, your mother's first baby with Stan was a son, and they nicknamed him Pedro. Pedro? Pedro. Ex explain that nickname, which goes right I, in with what we've been discussing about the secrecy. I don't know where the name Pedro <laughs> come from, because everybody had nicknames like... Uh, Rosie's nickname was uh, Pumpkin, and Honeybee was Alice, and I don't know who picked well, his nicknames. You, you mentioned that they had to run and hide. Yes. And 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 the and so they called him Pedro because I guess. Oh, I I might have inferred that, but I wasn't thinking that. I don't know why they called him Pedro. It was, but you're right. Every time a strange card come into town into camp, then uh, the kids would all be taken and hidden somewhere. Uh, the public wasn't allowed to see the kids and know that there was kids there. <laughs> I, I went down there and visited, oh, I don't know, several years ago now, before I started the book. Uh -huh. And my wife was with me and would talk to the kids and ask them who, who they were or anything. And they would just look at us blank and run away, and they wouldn't even answer us. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've been through to other polygamy groups where the kids see a stranger and they'll turn and run in, in terror. They're, t they're terrorized by looking at strangers. They're, they're taught from, from birth on that uh, anybody outside the co-op that they don't know immediately or other organizations, if you want to do that. They're mm -hmm. taught that they're wicked people and they'll take them yeah, bad places and do too, bad yeah. things to them. That's right, they do that, and that's terrorizing for the children, and it certainly isn't healthy for them. Um, your family was groomed the same way my family was, about the secrecy, and so uh, when I left, I, I had difficulty. I was 18 years old when I ran away from the group, but I still had difficulty talking about anything for years. Um, I couldn't talk about the fact that I was from a polygamy group or anything about my mother's uh, polygam being a polygamous wife and so on until years later. Did you have that same difficulty? Kind of, but a little bit different. I didn't. I I had the t difficult time of talking about it, but it was more that I hadn't. It's more that I hadn't uh, 100% broken my ties. I think. Mm. I still somewhat believed in them, and I didn't want to do them any harm at the time. And oh, it, took, it took several years before I said, hey, this is BS. You know, there's nothing there. If I want to tell the truth, I can tell the truth. Right, yeah, and we're supposed but to be truth-tellers, I, I think. I think it, was, it didn't bother me to talk to them uh, as far as that it upset me or anything. It's just that I, there was still a part of me saying that that was supposed to be secret and not brought mm -hmm. out in the public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they do one heck of a good job brainwashing. Yes, they do. They absolutely do. Now, you wrote this book, Murder at the Mind, uh, at the mine, <clears throat> uh, which we'll talk more about at the mine uh, in our next part two. But it, in writing the book, obviously your vows of secrecy or your your threats of secrecy uh, is, are gone. You have no fear about talking oh, yeah. about what is going on. You published the book. Has anybody uh, threatened you after you wrote the book? Has there been any no, negative I, comments about I'm it? I'm so far away from the Kingston's that I've been warned that they would threaten me and come and kill me, and I say, if they do, so be it. I've had 70 years, so if they want to take it early, let them be it. <laughs> and I said, it's something I had to do, I'm doing it. But so I live so far out of, out of the state that I doubt they'd ever bother, although I know that they own stores right in the same town I live in. Yeah, they own stores all over the Intermountain West. So they haven't, you haven't had any threats, though, as a result of the book? No, no direct threats. Uh, my brother, he didn't want to get involved too much because 
him and his wife says they had threats over some other things that because oh. they they used to be involved with the legal stuff of serving subpoenas and everything, and they yeah. got threatened by the Kingstons that yeah. they was going to be killed and everything. So they, well. and I don't know how true that is. It's just from them. They said that. Yeah. Well. So, uh, but I, I never I, personally I, had any threats. I don't think we should take those them. I think we should take them seriously when they threaten us because that's the way we were raised. You know, we'll get you if you do, <laughs> or God will get you if you do. In chapter 13, you talk a lot about, you begin talking a lot about your life and, and what life was like at the coal mine. Now, this was a co-op owned coal mine uh, down in Huntington, Utah, and it's owned by the Kingston Polygamy Group. In fact, they owned it till just a few years ago, and it made them millions and millions of dollars. You wrote they used child labor, and you talked specifically earlier about making dummies. And I thought that, that brought back memories to me because the first, probably when I was uh, kindergarten and first grade, I was down, my mother lived down at the mine, and then we moved to Salt Lake after first grade. But we, as kids, little kids, four and five years old, would climb that mountain and go into the coal mine and make dummies. And those dummies are, explain what the dummies were. Well, it's a clay sack. Well, they're not used anymore, but it was a clay sack that was about two to three inches in diameter and 15 to 18 inches long. Uh-huh. And when they drilled a hole in the coal, they would fill the coal full of dynamite and then pack dummies in behind it hard like a rock so that when the, when the explosion went off, instead of blowing back out of the hole, it would break the coal up. Mm -hmm. okay. And they would, they would shoot off 106 of dynamite at a time, and if I remember right, there were 17 holes in a face, what they called a face, there were 17 holes. Each hole had five or six sticks of dynamite in it, and then each, behind each dynamite, there was three or four dummies packed in. Yeah, yeah, and they let the kids go up there, child oh. labor, Illegal child labor in a dangerous coal mine situation. I don't remember where we had to actually go underground to make the dummies. With we all went in the mouth of the mine. I remember we, that. We was outside whenever I did it on the dry clay dirt, but we was allowed to wander around and play in the mine anytime mm -hmm. we wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I remember going inside the mine. There was a lot of times I was way back in the mine. I mean, we were just little tykes. Right. Uh, that now, you talked about child neglect earlier, and I don't know. I would never dare let any of my children. Uh, do well, anything like that. Leaving the trail going up to the mine was very dangerous. Yes, it was. If you took the, the normal long trail around, you're close to the cliffs and stuff, you, you had, it's like mountain climbing. Mm -hmm. uh, or a lot of times later on, they let the, I don't know how old before they let the kids do it, but you go right up through the equipment, go right over the... No, we didn't do that oh. when, when we were going. Okay. Um, I quote from page 99, the co-op taught that we must do this work to keep in good standing in God's eyes. From very early in life, they taught that everyone must work and save their money in the co-op banking system. Now, we've talked about that a little bit already. It was my experience that if we ever needed the money that we made, uh, we had to go through all of the ritual that we've talked about already, and yet sometimes they still wouldn't give you your money. But... Others have actually had thousands of dollars hidden from them. And when they leave, or if they leave, they can't even take that money with them. Did you have an experience like that when you left? I don't remember leaving any money with them because I pretty well was getting fed up with them. I pretty well spent all my money. I might even been dead. I don't know. I made sure that it was within $50 either way. I wasn't leaving any money. It was gone. Right. Um, uh, there's a lot. I've heard a lot of stories, I, horror stories money, about that. Several as times, well. money was taken from me mm -hmm. that I thought was unjustly, and I didn't fight that. One time was when I had an auto accident, 
and insurance was supposed to pay it all off, but the paperwork got submitted wrong, so Utah Power and Light was billing separately for the pole that was damaged, and the, the co-op just paid that off and then held it out of my money. Mm. Okay. And I could have fought it because insurance was supposed to pay it, but I just said, okay, it's done, it's done. Now, you mentioned mind control, and you talked about it in your book, too. And so I'm going to quote from page 101. There are many cases of brainwashing, mind control, or any other term that may apply. And in each case, if you follow it deep enough, you will find many cases are one of the following. Mental, physical, or sexual abuse. The co-op uses all of them. Now, that's, of course, the co-op being the Kingston Polygamy Group. Do you believe that the Kingston Polygamy Group uses the same kind of mind control as, say, Jim Jones did at Jonestown or David Koresh did in Waco or, or Warren Jeff did in the FLDS? I don't know if I referred to that in my book. I don't remember, but I did refer to that when I gave a speech at the library in Tucson. Uh, yes, they used the same power, and yes, I think if the Kingstons asked all the leaders to commit suicide, I'd put it bluntly, that I think most of them would. I think that uh, they're brainwashed to the point where that if they don't do what the kinks and uh, tell them to do, they're going to be damned into hell and live a life in, in eternal hell. And, and that's what they were taught. We were taught that, absolutely. So when you leave, that's what you're going to do anyway, is, is go to hell. You, taught, you wrote very quickly uh, on page 104 about the death of your baby sister, who was a daughter of Stan. And I quote, an autopsy was never performed. There was no record of her birth or of her death. So the real cause of her death was never found out, and we will never know. She was buried at a spot at the Trail Canyon coal mine, formerly owned by the co-op. How did you feel about that kind of treatment of your baby sister? I was really young at the time, and I wasn't real close to her. Uh, I knew her. I mean, I knew all of her and everything, but I just knew that it wasn't right and shouldn't happen. Uh, my brother said he was real close to her, and he was very upset and torn over it. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I was pretty deep in their brainwashing control. Yeah. That, Things happen, okay, it happened, just move on and don't worry about it. And, and it's not unusual. Uh, and I even hear recent stories of women who have lost babies, newborns, and they don't issue the birth certificates at birth, and so they'll bury them sometimes in their backyards, and, and nobody, there's no record of their birth or their death. That They just are an unknown. And I don't know if that's a good place to put it, but that's... Uh, the Kingstons have said, especially, I won't say his name, one of the Kingstons said, they always do everything legal and everything. Yeah. Well, there's been a law in the books in Utah since about 1905 that all, beth, all births and deaths have to be recorded with the state. Mm -hmm. That's true. Well, thank you. We're going to do part two and talk more about the murder. And I want to thank you, Charles, for coming and, and talking about these things. Um, in Acts chapter 2, verses 43, 44 through 35, it says that all believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had needs. Polygamy groups will use these verses to justify their selfish greed and their United Order organization. But in reality, those verses in Acts do not mandate today's polygamy groups like they say. Instead, they believe the Christ-like love that believers had for one another, and that's what they, how they explain it. It is not mandatory giving. It was voluntary. Nor did they cease providing for their own families in order to give everything to just a few selfish, greedy men at the top. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the truth. <clears throat> and Jesus is the only way to heaven. Polygamy and the United Order are abusive paths away from, not towards the truth. Thank you for watching. See you next time. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? 
This program is a production of the Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again. Thank you.